Welcome to The Promontory, the podcast with a view on the changing tides of culture and technology. I'm your host, Kevin Mark Lodi, and with me you'll hear conversations, commentary, and stories that will change the way you see the changing world around you. Today's episode, Reversal of Fortune. That title actually ends with a question mark and concerns the bold and beautiful world of luxury, a multi-billion dollar industry that's been impacted by COVID-19. The big challenge will be now with overstock. We're going to see an incredible sales season. So wait for June and buy whatever you want because all luxury brands, you know, the spring summer collection will be on sale, heavily on sale. That was my guest today, Alberto Festa, a longtime executive at the leading luxury groups LVMH and Caring. You'll hear our conversation after my opening monologue, but first, this. Thank you for joining me today. It's April 2020, and this is the first episode of the Promontory Podcast. So an enthusiastic happy birthday is in order. It also happens to be my personal birthday month, so that's a great time for me to kick things off. In fact, I'd like to give a shout out to all my fellow Aries and those who love them. I'm casting from the West Coast, so I think that's an appropriate comment to add. In fact, some have probably tuned out based on that. (laughs) But the rest of you just might be turning the volume up a little higher. Well, great. If that's the case, you're my kind of person. If you're intellectually curious and love ideas, and enjoy being creative and taking risks in your thinking, well, then you know that's a great way to learn and discover opportunities. And frankly, it's just a little bit thrilling. And if that's who you are, we're part of the same club and we're going to have some fun and interesting times together. So now, from here on the promontory, let's dive in. Today's episode, Reversal of Fortune. Again, I'm posing that as a question, and it concerns the luxury industry. But before I get into that, I think a little bit of background would be helpful. When I'm not doing this, I work as a strategist in a few different industries, and it just so happens that includes the luxury industry, where I've worked with a few of the larger luxury brands. Those experiences have taught me a lot. Luxury brands are unique. Now, a lot of you understand that, especially if you work in the industry, you probably have a deeper understanding and know what the distinction is between a luxury brand and a premium brand or what affordable luxury is about. If that's the case, you might want to just skip forward to my interview with Alberto Festa. But if you'd like to learn a little bit more, if that would be helpful for you, I'm going to give you a mini overview, a sort of classroom experience in, let's say, five minutes or less. This will just be easy and unofficial. Here we go. You already know there's something special about luxury brands. They aren't just expensive. Their real value is in their ability to commoditize dreams and emotions, things that are larger than life. Luxury brands have legends associated with them, people like Coco Chanel. 
and they have exciting identities that are anchored in iconic places like Paris and New York City. Like superheroes, they have almost mythical origin stories. And like a religion, they use signs and symbols that only an inner circle understands. And they generate devotion like a religion does. They don't just have casual consumers. I mean, some of us are, but they also have fanatics that adore what the brand stands for. Ralph Lauren is a master at creating vivid luxury brands. When you think of Ralph Lauren, what do you think of? Probably America, but a very particular type of America. The America of the Eastern seaboard in a world of patrician dynasties and prep schools. A world populated by people who summer and have yachts or go on safaris and, of course, who play polo. Another Ralph Lauren brand, Double RL, captures another version of an American ideal, the American frontier. Now, that's a place of free-spirited pioneers and rugged ranchers and cowboys. At other times, he's invoked the jazz age or the glamour of vintage Hollywood. I mean, nobody does it better than Ralph, in my opinion. You're buying that Ralph Lauren item, not just because of the tailoring and the buttery leather, but because it makes you part of that dream. Now, maybe that is your world, in which case it confirms and demonstrates your status. Or perhaps you aspire to that world. You say, that's who I'm going to be, or that's how I want to be perceived. Or you're just fascinated by it, and you want a piece of it. Only luxury brands have this. This intangible value that goes beyond the intrinsic value of the actual item. And because of this, this highly desired thing that you can't put a price tag on, they have a hold on our emotions, and we're a little bit beholden to them. They actually have a degree of authority over their audience. They are the creative genius and tastemaker who can dictate what beauty is, what the trend is, what the new black is. In other words, they lead. They do not follow. Luxury brands are like artists creating beautiful and unusual works. Fabulous rare birds that you've never seen before. Not things that just replicate what's already approved as likable or popular. To give you an example in a completely different category, let's take Jim Morrison and the Doors. When they arrived on the scene, they were like nothing else. Now compare them to 98 Degrees, a boy band. A boy band that follows a pop music formula for what most people like. It's the least common denominator, not a superlative. And here's a useful term. This is an important distinction. High-quality goods that are deliberately designed and rolled out to be crowd-pleasers are not luxury. They're what we call premium. And premium brands can be expensive, but they're not as cool or as sexy as the luxury brand. They imitate the luxury items and resemble them, but they don't come with the same kind of magic that stirs the imagination. And that's where the luxury industry's fortune lies. And by fortune, I mean both its value and its future. Now, what I've shared with you is just, you know, the very simple overview I promised in under five minutes, and, I, and we hit that. There are also some very good books and industry reports that I think you'd find interesting. And you can also use your own powers of observation. If you start to observe how brands position themselves online, 
in their campaigns. Look at their Instagram accounts even. And also in store, there's much to be said about the in-store experience. Observing these things, you'll also start to understand the complexity of what makes a luxury brand what it is. And I think you'll find that all of these things ultimately create that intangible value that really distinguishes and elevates luxury brands and puts them in their own category. And that's what I'd like you to keep in mind when we discuss luxury's character and why it's so important that when luxury brands adapt to changing times like they have to now, and surely as they will have to in the future, that they protect and continue to cultivate the things that give them their unique power and leverage. And now, reversal of fortune in the interview with my special guest. Luxury is a multi-billion dollar industry, and coronavirus has impacted both sales and supply chains. In Italy, where 40% of all luxury goods are manufactured, production has come to a standstill. And at the same time, every brand is left with merchandise that's literally going out of style. No one saw this coming. The year began with estimates of 4 to 5% growth annually through 2025. But since February, we've been in a survival of the fittest situation. Several industry experts have rallied and responded quickly. A few of the recommendations they had in common were these. Emphasize digital strategies, right? People can't go out shopping. Focus on transactional activities versus brand building. In other words, ring the register. Don't worry about your image right now. And be more consumer-centric. Respond to what the customer wants, especially now. These are the kind of pivots that could rescue financials in the short term. Some advisors have even suggested that these moves could be adopted for the long term and should be. And of course, these are the kind of temporary actions that often have staying power. There's always the tendency in times of crisis to make changes that you then keep. It's like a survival reflex. It protected us. It worked out at the moment. Maybe we should keep doing it. Crises often catalyze change and motivate businesses to reinvent themselves or make corrections that they'd otherwise overlook during good times. But the luxury business is about both profits and positioning. So these are the things that I'd like to get perspective on. First, where were we before the virus? Was COVID-19 just the straw that broke the camel's back? Did Neiman Marcus file for bankruptcy last week just because of COVID-19? Probably not. Barney's New York did the same thing a year ago. Also, what will happen to luxury's brand positioning if it becomes more transactional or, in the interest of pleasing important new markets, it compromises its creative convictions and becomes untethered from its core identity? And what's the right balance between digital strategies and real-life experiences, especially in an industry whose value is based on being a little inaccessible and more high-touch? To explore these questions, I'm delighted to be speaking with today's guest, Professor Alberto Festa, who brings an impressive understanding of the business. He's held C-level and managing director roles at several divisions of LVMH, including Loro Piana, and for over 15 years at Bulgari. He's currently a consultant to Caring. That's the luxury group that includes Gucci, Saint Laurent, Alexander McQueen, and a dozen other leading brands. Professor Festa also teaches luxury and fashion at universities and business schools in his native Italy and abroad. Alberto, thank you for joining me and welcome to the Promontory. 
Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having me here. We saw COVID-19 impact the luxury industry very swiftly. But as you know, the luxury industry has been facing repeated disruption for the past 20 years. Many would say it left its comfort zone a while ago. Could you set the stage by sharing with us the different events and conditions that started to change things? The story started uh, a few years ago. After the crisis in the U.S., uh, which uh, was uh, 2008-2009, the Western world, uh, when I say Western, I mean European and Americans, uh, which were the main luxury consumers before 2008, they, they didn't have any more the purchasing power that they had before. So they dramatically dropped down uh, purchasing luxury goods. And in the meantime, Chinese... Koreans, South Asians, they came into the market with an, an incredible number of new individuals every year uh, reaching the level of income that uh, allowed them to buy luxury goods. And so in a few years, we observed a complete shift of uh, uh, nationality of uh, uh, purchaser, which not necessarily mean the country where the purchase were made because due to the price difference that we have uh, between uh, Europe and Asia mainly, but also between you know, US and Asia partially, many Asians find very convenient to buy when they travel to Europe and eventually even convenient when they travel to US. So that's why if we look at the numbers of the companies, the brands that they managed to develop the turnover that they managed in Europe was still high, but the Europeans were not buying anymore. Europeans, you know, fall down very quickly in the last, uh, you know, five, six years. And in the same time, the Asians uh, went up. What does that consumption look like? For some brands, the Chinese customers already reached 50% of the turnover between what they buy at home, which is one-third, and two-thirds is what they buy when they travel. This was the reality before the virus. Now we already see a change because they will, will not travel for sure for a few months from now. Uh, so, you know, the balance of what they're buying at home is very quickly repositioning. And then we have 9% uh, Japanese, another 9 10% Koreans. So with three nationality, we reach almost a 70% of what luxury brand sells in the world. Three nationalities, Chinese, Japanese, and Koreas. And then if we add Southeast Asia and a few other parts, you reach 75% very quickly. And there was another thing that took place in those years, which is about pricing. Since the Chinese, the Asians, came into the market with no memory because they didn't know how much were the price of luxury goods. They had no memories. They became rich a few years before. So for them, uh, buying uh, a, a Chanel bag for $5,000 was normal, but was not normal. Three years before, exactly that bag cost 3000 And the Westerns, they had memory of this. I monitor price of many, many 
luxury item who remain exactly the same, like the Chanel 2.55 bag or the Rolex Submariner, or, you know, there are some iconic pieces that are exactly the same since more than 20 years. If you monitor the price of these items in those years, 2010 and 2015, they double. They double. So we had this uh, combination of, uh, of things. So Westerns were disaffected and, and they stopped buying. In the same time, Chinese and Asians with no memories, they came into the market with the money, with the liquidity, and they got crazy for blacks or the goods. So the newness of this relationship is really key. For the luxury brands, the Chinese consumer is a new client. And for the Chinese consumer, the luxury brands are a new commodity. Does that beginner phase favor some categories over others or present other product opportunities? And if so, what's a good example? Uh, a good example is given by the importance uh, of categories like uh, high jewelry from uh, fashion brands. So this is, an, this is a perfect sign that uh, the new Chinese rich people, you know, people that have been rich for one generation only, basically, they can easily buy a piece of eye jewelry from Gucci, from Dolce, from uh, Armani, which for Europeans, and I would say even for Americans, if you have uh, a few hundred thousand uh, dollars to invest in a jewelry piece, uh, you probably want to go to Cartier, you want to go to Boulder, you want to go to Van Cleef, to Tiffany, but you don't, you don't probably, you don't consider Dolce as an alternative for an expensive piece of jewelry. Sure. By definition, a less experienced customer is just less sophisticated. But money talks. And if China's responsible for the lion's share of sales, or I guess I should say the tiger share, does that influence business strategy? Yes, this is definitely influencing uh, product development, in a sense. You know, marketing activities. Now, brands are considering to make their main presentation in China or involving as much as possible the Chinese public. The challenge for luxury brand is now incorporating Chinese cultural element somehow which for some brand has been easier, for some brands more difficult, incorporate Chinese cultural elements to show respect of the culture. You know, Chinese pride uh, is an element. At the same time, and this is the challenge, the products still should look European, uh, Western feeling somehow, because otherwise, you know, they will not be appealing anymore. And this is the challenge. Right. That Western identity is the brand's appeal. And even though China is an important market, brands still need to retain their creative integrity and can't appear to kowtow, to use a Chinese expression. Alberto, I know you're familiar with the Chinese influencer known as Mr. Bags. And for any listeners who haven't heard of him, Mr. Bags can sell out an entire inventory and an online flash sale. There's a story you can find at Vice Media where he sells 300 Todd's handbags in a matter of minutes. I think it's four minutes, or maybe seven minutes, but it was almost $500,000 in sales, a half million dollars. And because he can make that sort of thing happen, brands consult with him. They seek his input. And I don't mean input on sales and marketing. They seek his creative input. 
And he'll tell them, well, for the Chinese market, this bag should be a different size or a different color. And some brands will accommodate that. In fact, some have even co-branded bags with him. And that's unusual. It's unusual for a luxury brand to appear to depart from its own instincts and enable an outside party to kind of call the shots creatively. When I see that happen, I call it brand easing. It's more the behavior of a premium brand. I think we've seen some brand easing that's taken place to woo and accommodate this major market. What's the history on how brands have attempted to acknowledge the Chinese market more? When brands try to be more appealing to Chinese culture, the first thing that they do is create the Chinese New Year collection. Then they evolved, and then they, you know, became more sophisticated. Many design teams of, um, of luxury brands are now incorporating Chinese designers that, you know, bring this culture and, and, and merge this culture. Um, and again, I mean, it's a challenge because, as you said, brands, they have to stay with their own personality and somehow lead the design. And on the other side, they need to serve that. I'd like to ask you about the luxury industry's relationship to the digital world and e-commerce. There's no consumer-facing brand that can afford not to have a full digital strategy. But luxury brands are different from other brands. And as you know, luxury moved very reluctantly and cautiously into the digital space. Of course, now, brands work with influencers and have millions of followers on social media and deploy beautiful campaigns and branded content online. But just a decade ago, many brands had very lean websites and only recently have some become more open to e-commerce. Why is that? Exclusivity and accessibility, this is the paradox of luxury. Every brand is in balance between these two concepts, which are the opposite. And uh, they want to keep the exclusivity. And e-commerce is no exclusivity. If all the brands pass through a five-inch screen, this is a very democratic uh, tool, so they cannot make the difference. Yeah, they can, you know, they can be more interactive, they can do more precious content, but, I mean, it's very hard uh, for luxury brands to really make the difference in digital as they can make uh, on physical, on brick and mortar. And by the way, e-commerce is now representing 12%, and this year we are expecting to see um, even more growth but it's not really breaking the sector. That's interesting. Luxury brands like Chanel and Cucinelli have produced some very evocative and beautiful content. And they want you to bask in it and have it resonate. But when you're online, you're amid what I call the mass ephemera of the internet. You just don't have a consumer's undivided attention. Or if they're shopping, which is great, which is what everyone wants, sales, the online experience is fragmented and transactional and just flat. It's not the same as being immersed in the in-store experience. How do stores continue to play a role? Stores are a piece of image. And, uh, and brands, we keep investing in this. Because being in those streets, being in those small around the world with monumental flagship store, because we're not talking anymore about flagship store, we're talking about monumental flagship store, is a sign of distinction. 
And it's the only way they can make the difference with, uh, you know, the, the so-called affordable luxury stores uh, that were sort of affordable luxury brand that are populating, you know, our, our cities and our streets. I like how you phrase that, the idea that the stores are a piece of image. They really are. People become aware of brands in many different ways, but when they walk into that shop, it is really a tangible part of the, up until then, intangible dream. And we've seen many brands branch out even beyond that, not just monumental stores, but into new dimensions with museums and exhibitions. And of course, you know this better than anyone. Our listeners may not be aware of it, but you were actually the person behind the very successful exhibits for Bulgari. And I know it can be awkward to toot your own horn, but could you share a little bit about that success? I made two exhibitions in in, in US, one in San Francisco, one in Houston. And I remember in San Francisco, we had 200,000 visitors in four months, paying $16 upcharge ticket to see a commercial exhibition. This to me remains a milestone in my career, how powerful luxury brand can be in attracting attention from consumers. And other brands have been involved with museums as sponsors, but what you did was elevate Bulgari to the next level. The brand wasn't merely sponsoring an exhibit. Instead, their creations were so precious and important that they were the subject of the exhibit itself. And certainly we've seen other types of exhibits, the phenomenal Alexander McQueen exhibit, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Hermes and its exhibits on craftsmanship, the so-called Métier d'art, and the opening of the Prada Foundation and the Louis Vuitton Foundation, which really speaks to the status of a luxury brand. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. This is something, this is an experience that only luxury brands can provide uh, with history, with, you know, craftsmanship and these type of things. And I think listeners will be glad to know that that's something we'll probably see more of. But for now, we're still in this survival of the fittest moment. And related to that Darwinian concept is another phenomenon called the differentiation of species, which is when something evolves into something distinctly different from what it was. And at this very challenging time when brands need to adapt, they don't want to transform themselves out of the luxury category. So for those who want to retain that positioning, what do you think matters most now? Well, I think uh, it's always a distinctive personality. So having a distinctive personality, keep acting as uh, normal. The big challenge uh, will be now with uh, Overstock. We all know that uh, the spring-summer collection will be unsold. So what brand will do, especially the fashion brand, uh, you know, an example is Gucci. Gucci announced uh, a year ago that uh, they stopped to to do sale. And now we know that uh, they will open uh, sale season again in June this year because they they are sit on a lot of inventory. So... I mean, this year in June, we're going to see an incredible sales season. So wait for June and buy whatever you want because all luxury brands, you know, the spring-summer collection will be on sale, heavily on sale. So the way the brands will act 
to solve this problem is, uh, in my view, will be a cost because, I mean, nobody wants to destroy the inventory. Nobody wants to be sit on unsold inventory. But probably will be a turning point uh, to determine uh, which brand uh, will remain in the, in the true luxury area and which brand will, will, will slow down. Yes, we will see if there will be that reversal of fortune or not. And that said, Alberto, thank you so much for joining me on this first episode of The Promontory. Thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you, Kevin. And by the way, listeners, did you catch that last piece of advice that Professor Festa gave us? He said that brands should have a personality and act as normal. What I really liked about that, and you might have picked up on this too, is that that's great advice for people. In other words, be authentic, and in times of crisis, adapt, but don't overreact. Trust yourself and be true to yourself. And with that, I will say thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. To catch the next episode, subscribe to The Promontory wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, always take in the view around you, but then dive in.